This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. It's one interview with two distinct parts. Learn how this well-known ranch works to stay ahead of the trends and produce great cattle and beef. Then get the rest of the story as the Wagonhammer Ranch identified the biggest need in their community and set about raising the dollars to turn the fortunes of their small town. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot BioProven. You've heard me talk about how in 2020 I began using a new corn nitrogen product firsthand in my fields, Pivot BioProven. Pivot BioProven adheres to the root of the corn plant, creating a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. I've been very interested in how it can be a weather-resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable and productive yields than ever before. In 2021, we're looking at how Pivot BioProven can help supply our corn with the nitrogen it needs throughout the season, which should mean the use of less synthetic nitrogen in the future and a better ROI, which means good yields, better margins, and a more sustainable way to farm. Pivot BioProven may change the way you think about nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Jay Wolf has been around the cattle business his entire life. He knows it can be a tough yet rewarding way to make a living on the edge of the Nebraska Sandhills. When he and I sat down to visit at a recent conference in his home state, we began to talk about the future of the cattle industry and how the Wagonhammer Ranch works to stay ahead of the trends on the seed stock side and produce great beef for the cattle they feed to finish. That part of the interview alone is very interesting, but add to that the second half of the story. When Jay talks about the biggest challenge in their town of 1,600 people, a challenge that may seem far removed from agriculture, yet one he and others rallied to support to find a solution to a problem that was impacting many businesses and the very future of their hometown. Here's the story. I'm visiting with Jay Wolf from Albion. Uh, Jay's a rancher there. J- Jay, why don't you start by just telling people where Albion's at in, in the state, because that dictates a lot of what you do with the land out there. Right. We're uh, the gateway to the Sand Hills. We're two hours west of Omaha, but right on the edge of the Sand Hills. And our ranch actually is in Wheeler County, which is all Sand Hills. So when your family originally came out there, was it Depression era? Were people getting out of the ranching? I think you guys maybe got in when some people were getting out. That's true. We, uh, my grandfather came in 1895, but uh, they farmed in the, uh, there in the Albion area and fed cattle. And then uh, when the Dust Bowl came along... Uh, a lot of those uh, sodbusters gave up on, uh, on the, on the sandhills and they abandoned those places. But uh, my grandfather said, well, it might be too sandy and too dry to farm, but I think it'd be pretty good cattle country. So they started kind of gathering up the ranch at that time. So over the years then, did your family just begin to piece parcels together to create the ranch then they had today? And was that land then had been farmed, but you put it back in grass? Is that what you were doing? There were strips that they farmed in between the hills. That's right. But they put most of it together during the 30s. And my dad and I have added just marginally to it over the years. But uh, yeah. So talk about the cattle program today. What are you uh, doing out there? Well, we have a diversified operation. We have our redshirt Angus and we've been in them, uh, you know, basically since the late 50s and then registered Charlay as well 
and uh, and then we have a commercial cow herd that we do two breed rotation. Guess what? Angus and Charlay. <laughs> and then we have a small feed yard there at Albion, and uh, and then we we buy calves from all over the West and uh, and uh, and finish them there at Albion. So when you say you finish them, you're finishing them in Albion, and then where are they going for processing then? We primarily sell to either JBS in Grand Island or uh, Cargill at Schuyler. Do you do any branding type of programs with it, or how do you sell the beef? Uh, what program works well for you? Well, we're just selling uh, to the packers, not under any brand of ours. Uh, obviously, that our beef goes into the CAB program, but uh, but uh, we don't follow it through. Um, you know, we have our registered Angus herd, of course. Uh, the Wagonhammer Angus is our ranch. I guess it has worked well for you to do, in a sense, both. You've got the purebred side that you're doing, but also you've got the commercial side where you're selling to the packer. A lot of times we think about dividing those out, but it's worked well for you to do both, it sounds like. Well, it does. I mean, uh, one thing about having a commercial herd, it keeps you grounded in what you're doing with your seed stock operation. You know, it has to work, and, uh, and it has for us. I'd be interested, what have you learned? Because, you know, I think all of us want data to come back, but in a sense, you've got the data because you've raised a lot of them. What have you learned, and how has it changed what you do over time? Well, you know, you have to keep your cows, uh, you know, an economical size. You can't chase trends, and uh, you've got to be careful to basically stay in moderation in all the productive traits. You can't trace carcass traits at the expense of... Uh, of uh of having an efficient and uh and moderate sized cow right on down the line we do find the charlotte angus to be an excellent uh, uh hybrid bigger in terms of in the feed yard and we also keep back those charlotte angus cows as commercial cows as well they make really good mama cows because they're once again our charlates are more moderate and uh and so that makes a nice cross for us do you find that you're able to get the data that you would like to have i think as cattle producers a lot of time we wish we could get more do you get what you want or do you wish that you could have certain other data to help you with your decision making well the in the on the the purebred side we do a lot of genomic testing so we have that but in terms of the cattle feeding yeah we make it pretty much a condition of sale that we get back the grade and yield uh, the yield grade information back. So we're watching how our cattle, not only the ones that we raise, but the ones we purchase also. So we can follow up year to year and try and buy the best, you know, uh, performing cattle, but also the cattle that kill right. We in the cattle industry sometimes uh, <laughs> argue among ourselves <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> and uh, I'm not trying to bring you into an argument, but I'm interested in how you make it work because it looks like in an industry where it's hard to to make things work it's a business where the margins are sometimes tight how do you make it work well we don't have a magic formula i mean cattle feeding has been tough the last few years as the packers have held back so much of the margin that uh, we'd like to see flow down to the production side so but uh being diversified does help and uh i have a great group of people that work with me and uh, they just do an excellent job I know, of, uh, of uh, performance in the feed yard and, uh, and health-wise and just all the production traits that, uh, that have to be done, you know, done really, really well. And then I have a seed stock guy, uh, Joe Epperly, who's just uh, really a wizard with uh, designing breeding programs, working with customers. He's done an outstanding job on, on the purebred side in terms of sales. 
You mentioned that you can't get too caught up in trends and you know whipsawing back and forth. But how do you stay up then with the the technology and keep moving forward? Because everything's always advancing. So is there any key for cattle producers to to try to stay up with the times and not just follow the fads and the trends? Well, that is a balance. Uh, you know, you the numbers are important, but you you know you still as the uh, the breeder's art, right? You still have, you know, phenotype and uh, and and understanding uh, what is a functional animal. Numbers can't tell you all those things, so you got to combine the two. And uh, I mentioned Joe Epperly. I think he does an outstanding job of of uh, incorporating the science in with the with the with the uh, artisan part of it. I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So you have been involved in many different boards and leadership and so forth. Where's our industry headed, do you think, down the road? Because I like to look at an optimistic side, but yet there's reasons for pessimism. But what, give me the optimistic look of where we're headed and how we can better manage our cattle herds and connect with consumers. Well, I think the last year or two have give reason for optimism from the demand standpoint is bound standing. And so what has to change is we have to get the producers to get a larger share of that dollar. And for that, we probably are looking forward to some increase in slaughter capacity in the next few years. It'll come slowly, but we need it. And hopefully we'll be able to get a a, a more fair share of what already is tremendous demand, both nationally and really internationally. Uh, The world loves our product. And uh, so that's fundamental, and that, that is a really good thing to work from. When you mention the capacity, do you think it will be the large capacity, or do you see in your area the trend of some smaller uh, capacity type of operations that can go better direct to the consumer? We hear different stories, but it's sometimes hard to delineate a clear trend about what's going to happen. Well, I think it's both, absolutely. Uh, we'll see some you know, small niche uh, uh, packing houses. They're critically important. Uh, and then, you know, we'll see some efficiencies of maybe the mid-range packers if they try to expand and take advantage of these tremendous margins that we're seeing today. And even the big packers are getting more efficient. They're going to be bringing robotics and trying to deal with their labor issues, uh, you know, in a, a number of different ways. So, and none of it by itself will solve the problem. All of it together will help. Do you think that we're headed towards more traceability of that product so when i eat a steak i know it came from jay wolf's uh, farm and is that something that you welcome yeah i think so but it'll be voluntary right uh i don't uh that's the best way and that's the way it will be i mean uh the the consumers are uh, there's a segment of the consumers i should say that are willing to pay for a source verified product and uh, there's an there's a portion of the industry that wants to meet that demand and uh and charge premium for it and uh, and I think that's outstanding, and that's that's going on. Uh, you look at the new plant that's being talked about in North Platte. That's exactly their business plan, and uh, and so they don't want to just produce commodity beef. And I hope that's a successful venture. Uh, but just an example of of kind of the mindset of, of of where the industry is headed. Do you find you mentioned the demand? Do you find the consumers they seem to continue to want very high-end product. Uh, I'm sometimes amazed at, you know, where this beef's selling and, and so forth. Uh, do you see that as well out there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean the, the price that's being paid for beef, well, it's leaving about $1,000 ahead margin for packers that used to make, what, 160 And, 
you know, it just it's it's fabulous demand. I mean, that is not our problem. Uh, getting a share of it is, but that demand is not just domestic. That's a huge international demand as well. Uh, China's come into the market, but Japan and Korea and uh, the whole Asian rim, but South America has started to build their demand for our product and uh, and uh, and just worldwide. Before we leave the topic of beef cattle. What uh, leaves you optimistic out in the Sandhills? We mentioned it can be a tough business, but uh, you're still at the forefront doing a lot of good things. What leaves you optimistic about the business? Well, once again, I I think that when you look at, uh, what is it, 94, 96% of the world's consumers live outside the United States, and they are, over time, increasing their, their living standards. And when you do that, they want protein. And uh, and that includes our beef uh, as a uh, as a as a uh, niche uh, that uh, really the United States is in best position to fill, and so I think uh, that's that's a basic fundamental thing that's good. Obviously, we have many challenges. Uh, you know, be the environmental, government regulation, alternative proteins, a lot of challenges. But uh, when you have a consumer that wants your product, that's a pretty good place to start. I want to jump over to something that I think is still very much related to, to cattle and farming, but it's your community. And one of the things that's led us together is, is some things you've done in your community. Talk about the need that you had in Albion, or maybe even just talk about Albion itself. How big a town are we talking about, and what challenges are you facing out there? Because you're not exactly up against any big urban area. You've kind of have people that kind of want to live in the Albion area out there next to the Sandhills. We're a town of 1,600 and a county of just over 5,000. And uh, what we were talking about today was that uh, we saw a need for an early childhood development center. There's a critical lack of child care. And child care is just one of the basic building blocks of a community. Uh, you got to have that, and you need housing, you need education uh, opportunities in terms of good schools, you need health care, and you need recreation. But uh, for Albion specifically, we were very short of uh, child care, and that was an impediment to attracting young families that might want to live there. Uh, it was just turning them away. And so we, uh, now that we'll have our new child care center that will open this off fall, uh, we turned what was, a, uh, I guess, a big uh, uh, shortfall for us into a, a strong attractor and a big positive. And uh, we're really excited what that can mean for the future of our community. I don't mean this to be sarcastic, but why does a rancher care about child care? Uh, <laughs> you, you cared, and there was a reason, but why did you get so involved? Well, I didn't initially, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, I just thought, well, we just needed a place to park kids while their parents worked, right? <laughs> but as I got involved, uh, I learned that, you know, how critical early childhood development is that first five years. And, uh, and, and really uh, fell in love with the concept. And, uh, but not just me. It, it turns out people in our community just get it. And uh, so they understand that, that, that working parents need it. They understand that employers need it. But they also understand that children need it. And, uh, and so the uh, support of the community was just uh, overwhelming. Do you think that not having that was keeping families from being there and keeping businesses from growing or finding the employees they needed? Or maybe it was even with you, with the people that you needed. It absolutely was uh, for our community. Uh, you talk to our, be it our hospital, our implement dealer, our major feed yard in our area, all of them will tell you the same thing. I mean, they were losing out on some really good uh, families that as soon as they found out that they were not going to be able to find child care, they weren't coming. 
And now we've changed that around, and that uh, will be the place they choose to come, we think. What, the places that they were going then, were they other towns similar in size that had it, or were they just bigger places that we would think, well, they're big so they can have that type of thing? Well, I think everybody's struggling with this, but maybe you're in a situation where you have a job and you have child care, and you're not going to leave that to go to somewhere where you're not going to find it. And uh, Or maybe you know, it's a young couple looking to start a family, and they're just not wanting to go to a place where everybody says, well, you'll never find child care here. But we've changed that now. That's not going to be the case. When this started, though, it didn't start as an early childhood learning center. What did it start at? This thing snowballed over time. Yeah, it surely did. Uh, we started out just looking at our in-home providers, which we are still supporting and need them. I mean, we're not replacing them. This is additive. But uh, we went to them. We had a, hired a young woman that, uh, that uh, took on this project. And she went to them and said, what, is, what are the bottlenecks? Why are we not... Why are you not growing, or why are we not bringing in more in-home providers? And so she learned what their challenges were, and uh, and helped a couple of them get started. And then uh, and after that, she started an after-school program. She and another individual, uh, which was a tremendous success, uh, which takes some of the uh, uh, stress off the in-home providers when uh, when they have a place for the for the kids that are in elementary school to go. And so that uh, program went on to be really a model for the state. But we did all that, and she said, well, we need to do more. And, uh, but she put together a, a sustainable uh, business plan within certain parameters and sold us on the idea, and so then we took on the project. So how does a town of 1,600 begin to get their arms around a $2.5 million project initially? Is that right? <laughs> it started out that. It ended up well over $4 million when we were done. Uh, well, we were just, we had some tremendous early, you know, believers, investors, uh, within the community. And, uh, so they, they committed to support the project and we put together a business plan. Uh, we had a state organization called the Nebraska Communities for Kids come in and, and basically, uh, assist us with professional, uh, uh, staffing uh, in terms of the planning and uh, and then they put us in contact with uh, some a couple of major Omaha foundations that were excited about what we were doing and so they joined in and then the thing just kind of came together but it's still 80 percent local funded so we're proud of that I think people would be curious though in a town of 1600 with a project that ended up being four million and 80 percent came local how did you find that money? Because many of us would say, well, there's no way that I can come up with $3 million in a town of 1600 So how did you begin to make that happen? Well, I was the first one that said we couldn't do it. <laughs> I, I, honestly, uh, it, it, it was easier than it sounds because, like I said, on many levels, people just understood the need and the benefit and just a, a type of project they just want to be involved with. And a lot of younger families that you don't really look at as being a, a source of donations stepped in and and made pretty sizable donations at a time in their life I wouldn't have expected it and that was really uh, gratifying and 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 uh, and was a neat part of it so the childhood center now will it then they still charge it's not a free service right no we too we charge uh, we looked at what the in-home providers are charging and we said that we would never un- undercut them so we'll charge more than they do and uh and uh, uh and then we have a uh, tuition assistance program for low-income families so they'll be able to uh to afford it uh, uh because uh we want we definitely want them to have access uh 
because the benefits of early childhood development is uh, is, uh, is is getting to the at-risk children, and uh, that's what's neat about it. I, I'm going to get off of my soapbox here a little bit, but one of the things that got me excited was this. Uh, they say that when they assess children for kindergarten, uh, if they are deemed to be, say, not ready, uh, and when they start, that's where they end up when they graduate from high school. They just never catch up as a rule. Uh, but if you get a child uh, in early childhood development and catch them up before kindergarten starts, uh, then you can change the trajectory of a child's life, and that's one of the neat things you can do in a facility like this, and that's what really excited many of us. Who owns the facility then? Who raised the money and who owns it? It's a nonprofit. Okay. Uh, we put together 501c3 to own it. We started out by housing it within our community foundation. Then when it got bigger, then we moved it over to the 501c3. So it's still early on in the project, but I am guess you're going to say that this has been a way to attract people, and it certainly alleviates one of the big hurdles to getting some families to town. Absolutely, as we get it up and going. But it, like you say, we, we open in October, and we're running into the same uh, uh, challenges everybody is. How are we going to hire enough staff? We, we hired a fa- fabulous director, and uh, when you can start with a leader like that, the, the staff will build, and we've got the lead teachers hired. So it's just going to take time. But they told us when you start, it'll take you three years to get up to capacity, and that's exactly what it'll be. And uh, and uh, what we think by three years, that's where we will be, 80 children. 80 children, yeah. So talk about what else is going on in Albion, because that was a big project, but yeah. you have other things going on to help make the play, make it a place people want to come. Oh, yeah, we really do. We just uh, completed a uh, uh, over $5 million project that is a basically an indoor arena, and it also houses our county extension office. It's a really neat, uh, call it the Ag, Edu- Ag Education Center. And uh, that's a neat project. Uh, we uh, we have a lot going on. Uh, we're, the hospital is doing a $23 million, uh, basically, uh, addition and remodel. Uh, we have a new junior high that's uh, just been added to our elementary and high school. Uh, we put in a recreational trail. We have a fitness center. We have a lot of things going on. How did you make it happen? Because it's pretty easy to say, but you rattled off a lot there and a lot of money. How does it happen? It didn't happen overnight. It's happened over time. But if you look at the communities where, where, where you'd want to live, you'll see those are communities that are willing to reinvest in themselves, and they've done it internally with their own, their own people. They may bring in some foundation dollars, but most of it is all done uh, with, with, with the people who have the vision that, that know that you have to reinvest in your community if you want a great one. So what's next for you and, and your farm? Uh, continuing with this, or what do you see on the horizon? Well, for me personally, uh, you know, I, I've got uh, some really great people that are working with me, and, uh, you know, we have some ex- we have exciting future, for I think, for the Wagon Hammer brand. And, uh, and uh, you know, as far as the community itself, uh, you know, we're looking at our, we're going to have another visioning session and look at what's the next big, big thing for Boone County because one thing we learned from this project is uh, – it was overwhelming uh, uh, as we looked at it, but we did it, right? So now we, we kind of have a can-do attitude, so we just will bite off the next one. <laughs> well, do you ever stop and look back and say, how did we do that? Because uh, <laughs> people are going to want to know, how do they begin to make it happen? Well, it, uh, we, had a great, we had a great group of people that came together for our steering committee, and they were very diversified. They're business people, they're education people, they're uh, community leaders and philanthropists, all 
join together, but each bringing different perspectives. And of every one of our projects, that was true, uh, is, is try to have a diverse, both, both in terms of age and perspective. And uh, so, yeah, I think that was critical to it. Wind up with this, tell folks why they need to come to Albion, because it sounds like it must be a pretty good place now. It really is. Uh, we, with those five building blocks that we talked about, we really do them very well. We have outstanding uh, health care. We just redone our school, K-12. through We have a great deal of recreation you wouldn't find in a small community. Now we have a new early childhood development center and uh, housing. That's a challenge everywhere, but I think uh, I see it improving in uh, Boone County faster than most places. Appreciate the time. Well, thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it. If you have a moment, check out the Wagon Hammer Ranch in Albion online. You'll enjoy seeing the pictures and learning more about Jay, his family, and their operation. As always, thank you for joining us either on your local radio station or via the podcast. And remember, you can follow the show on Facebook as well as our daily American Countryside broadcasts on local radio stations or Facebook as well. And we're posting ideas on community improvement, similar to what Jay shared about the challenges and solutions in his hometown. That's being posted at TotalTownMakeover.com and TotalTownMakeover on Facebook, where you can find ideas related to improving your community. I'm Andrew McRae. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.